Namaste. My name is Callie Klug and I am a yoga teacher and Reiki practitioner in Orange County and I am very passionate about healing. This is the Your Own Medicine podcast, so welcome. Here we explore the countless modalities to healing through authentic chats and honest interactions. So let's discover how to be your own medicine. Namaste, Kali here. I want to thank you for supporting me, supporting this podcast. And I want to tell you all the ways that you can practice yoga and meditation with me. I really like to use yoga and meditation to empower people and give them the tools and ability to heal themselves, whatever that means to them and to you. Uh, The first way you can practice with me is on YouTube. I have some videos on there, both yoga flows, meditations, breath work, all kinds of things on YouTube for free. I also have, if YouTube is kind of your jam and you like the on-demand yoga, I have a online service called Yoga Island On Demand with 60 plus videos with new videos added every month. This service is only $5.50 a month, and it is constantly being updated. You have full access to the entire library um, with updates all the time, monthly. I also have gentle yoga classes on Zoom every Monday and Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. These are donation-based classes, and they're really nice to add into your routine just for some grounding, some movement, and afterwards you feel nice and clear and calm in your body. Finally, I offer private sessions both in person and on Zoom, and in these sessions we can really focus on your needs and desires and really focus in on hone in on what you want to get out of a yoga practice. So if any of these interest you, feel free to Check them out on my website, kaliklugyoga.com, or you can send me a DM or email on any of the platforms that I am on. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and namaste. All right, hi, Mark. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. My pleasure. It's, it's an honor for me, seriously. So why don't you tell us where who you are, what you do, and where you're located. My name is Mark Cheng. I have a doctorate in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. I, let's see, I'm one of a handful of master instructors in Pavel Tsitsulin's Strong First organization, which specializes in strength training. My particular specialty within the Strong First modalities is kettlebell training. Um, I'm a master instructor. I used to serve on the faculty for functional movement systems, which created the, which was founded by um, Dr. Lee Burton and Gray Cook to use and spread the use of the functional movement screen. Let's see, I have teaching credential in several different martial arts. And uh, yeah, that's about it as far as my background. Where I'm located, my home base is in Diamond Bar, California, which is to the literally the far east of LA County but most of my work is done actually on a mobile basis. So usually with my patients or my clients uh, at their location of choice. 
Nice. That's awesome. And so what do you normally do with your patients? Is it mostly the martial arts training, the Chinese medicine? With my patients, it really depends. So there are, there are a few different modalities I bring to bear. There are times when I see patients that need passive care. So whether if that's passive care, that could be with any of the three, I guess, arms of Chinese medicine which are acupuncture, herbal medicine, or manual medicine, which is called Tuena. Um, and Tuena has three different submodalities within it, soft tissue work, joint mobilization, and then energy work, so energetic healing. So I can do any of that. Mostly my specialty is Tuena, which is manual medicine. But a lot of what I do clinically is also uh, rehabilitative strength training. So in other words, instead of just putting someone through strength training in a way like, okay, I'm going to just be a, a work on your strength and conditioning. My motto is this, um, and this is the motto of my business, make every rep rehabilitative. So in other words, as you're working out, if your training is correct in my mind, in, in, in the paradigm that I ascribe to, every rep that you do in your training should feed a better functioning, better feeling, better recovering body. So if you leave a workout feeling beaten down, if you leave a workout feeling like, God, I'm thrashed and I'm gonna need like the rest of the day to recover, that's a test, not a training. So if I'm training you, you should leave feeling better than you did when you came in. That's very interesting. And I know the last time I saw you, you, me and Oliver, we were talking about what it's like to train in a gym. And you had mentioned that. And I think that didn't super, because both me and Oliver, we normally train to the point of exhaustion or to failure. And you had something to say about that. You said something about Russian soldiers how they train to be strong but not not for mass right so my one of my mentors a gentleman by the name of Pavel Tsitsulin who was the first guy to really set to get put together a kettlebell training curriculum um, for the outside world for the um, American public I was fortunate enough to train extensively with Pavel for a few years on a private and semi-private basis and Pavel had a very interesting vignette when I first started working with him. He said, you know, most Americans, when you watch what they do in the gym, they try and train for like hypertrophy or they train to failure. The people that are working out there are quote unquote serious. And so if you're training to failure, then you're going to need time to recover. Like that's inevitable. If you're training till absolute muscle failure, you're going to need, you're, you're not going to be useful as an operative. So in other words, if you're thinking about someone in the military, if they're training to failure and war breaks out the minute that their workout is over, they're screwed. They like, they'll have to try and function on all cylinders. But we all know that if they've trained to failure, failure, they're, you know, they're going to be a liability to the unit. Conversely, when Pavel was presenting his means of training and the means of training that he was using in, as an instructor in Spetsnaz, the Soviet Special Forces, he said, like, if you look at the average way a Russian works out, it looks almost lackadaisical. Like you, they're doing a few reps here and there, like not absolute one rep max, but like close to it or a moderate weight, like a middle level weight. And then they'll work kind of opportunistic reps. They're not training to the point of absolute failure. They're not training to the point of like flirting with disaster, but they're doing some easy reps, laughing, talking, goofing around. And they're training in such a way where they're not trying to bulk up, but they're trying to just be crazy strong. Mm 
So the difference there is this. If you think about someone that's training to bulk up, usually when you think of someone that's bulky, their ranges of motion, their ability to move is not the most graceful that you've ever seen. And then there's that joke that you hear American bodybuilders talk about all the time. How many bodybuilders does it take to tuck in a shirt? And it's usually four. One guy to wear the shirt, one guy to tuck in the shirt, and two guys on the side going like, oh man, you look huge, go for it. You know, a Russian can be crazy strong, probably like, especially these guys that describe to this sort of training principle that Pavel describes. These guys can be crazy strong, yet they're wiry. So instead of looking like, like the Hulk, they look more like Bruce Lee. And so to me, as someone who has had a lifelong love of martial arts, that second paradigm spoke to me more than the first. And every time I tried weight training before, before training with Pavel, I'd usually end up quite injured. Like I wasn't, you know, like I wasn't moving better. Like I may put on a little bit of mass, but then it would fall back off because I'd get injured and not train. So instead, Pavel's method of sub-maximal reps with just below maximal or just slightly sub-maximal load or challenging load really spoke to me. And it allowed my tissues to get stronger without flirting with disaster so often. Also too, like I noticed that I was getting stronger and not losing ranges of motion. So that's an awesome thing. Yeah, the range of motion thing is interesting. I know as a yoga teacher, like the, it's mostly men that train to that point of gaining a lot of mass. And that really restricts the mobility. And even like just the compression, like it becomes restrictive because they are so big you know, there's there's a phenomenon called compartment syndrome. So like basically in certain parts of the body, there's there's a limited amount of real estate. So the moment that the muscles experience hypertrophy um, and they blow up, I mean, blow up, not in terms of rupture, but blow up in terms of size, like expand Mm -hmm. in terms of size. Sometimes they'll squeeze out other things. In other words, nerves, blood vessels, whatever else. So that's why, why at certain times you'll see people who undergo hypertrophy um, and they'll be like, yeah, you know, I'm experiencing this pain or like, am I, you know, I'm feeling like some numbness in my fingers. So there, there can be reasons for that structurally. That's interesting and kind of scary too. And I wonder too, maybe you can answer this question because I've been thinking about this lately. Is there actually a benefit to having more muscle mass? I know it, it's good to some point, especially as you age, since the muscles atrophy after age 50, I believe but is there actually a decent amount of benefit to having a lot of mass? Having a lot of mass per se is not what it's cracked up to be. I think like a lot of people look at these studies and they establish some sort of causality. And I don't, I don't think that's, that's correct. You know, there, there's, that tends to be just sort of commingling things, different factors that I don't think are super related. Having strength and having coordination are important as you age. Having mass, just dead mass by itself, no, not impressive. Bigger things tend to fall apart harder. I mean, like there's that saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Yeah. And it's true. You know, if you take someone that's that's a large person, and even if they're very strong, I'm not talking large in terms of like morbidly obese. I'm talking someone that's like, you know, very muscled, but not super coordinated the kinds of train wrecks that they're going to experience when they do have injuries are way more fearsome than like someone usually that's like 
a lot more coordinated and a lot more agile. So in other words, that person that's more agile usually can experience a situation like a slip and a fall and roll out of it or have some kind of way of, of dealing with it, of changing direction, of controlling their body much better than someone that's just big. Now, on the other hand, if that person that's just big has to deal with the line of work where they are constantly in physical contact with other people, like hard contact, in other words, like they're law enforcement, Someone like that that has the extra muscle to be able to absorb blows or to be able to absorb punishment, you know, that's definitely an asset. Okay, so basically, would that be one of the few situations where having extra mass would be beneficial? Yeah, I think it depends on what your assignment is. Let's say if you're mm -hmm. law enforcement, you know, like, I think if you're in a situation where you're going to have to be dealing with people, let's say in the jails, for example, it's a good idea to have a little bit of extra strength, a little bit of extra mass. You know, one, visually, it's a deterrent. Two, should you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to be able to absorb a blow or absorb some sort of, some sort of attack, it's good to have a little bit more muscle to be able to protect your structure. And I think also, too, in addition to law enforcement, like hospital orderlies, sometimes, you know, the guy that is a little bit bigger is a little bit more of a visual deterrent than the person that, like, might be really petite. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. That's interesting, too, that it's a combination of both the, the physics and the psychology. The, the two are really inseparable. I mean, like, mm -hmm. if you look at people who pick fights or people that cause trouble or people that are prone to to violence if i was clean cut like i was maybe 10 years ago and you know walking down the street with my kids it'd be one thing versus like the guy the look that i have now um, if i'm walking down the street now and i glare at somebody people think twice 10 years ago when i was like you know high and tight clean cut look and i glare at somebody you know it's neither here nor there so yeah, that's really interesting. I think there's just this huge, there's this huge trend right now in America, maybe it's international, I don't know, with women and men to just have so much mass on them. Like for women, it's like the big butts. And for men, it's just being huge. And sometimes I wonder, especially looking at the guys at the gym that are that big, I'm like, how healthy is that actually? So that's interesting just to hear. Because I think yeah. there's a part of it that's like, pursuing health we think it's pursuing health then you're like if if health is your priority maybe that's not the best way to go and i didn't I think, think twice about a, it until that conversation with you i really think that there's a there's a kind of interesting midpoint like there's some guys that can be big and for you know for their lifestyle it might be wonderful and also too if they themselves are individually offsetting the potential like limited ranges of motion or the stiffness that may come about like let's my mentor, Greg Cook, has a great line. He goes, if every, if every, you know, meathead did more yoga and every yogini did more, did more powerlifting, the world would be a better, healthier place. And yes. I totally, I totally ascribe to that. I think if you're just doing range of motion, if you're just doing stretching type stuff, if you're just doing flexibility type training, and you're not challenging yourself with raw strength or plyometric power, in other words, brute force and speed, if you're not challenging yourself with those two and or skill-specific coordination, meaning reaction time stuff, you're limited to how you develop as an athlete. So 
if you think about athletics as a reflection of health, an ideal reflection of health, like why not train to be super healthy? Why not train to be like that kind of an athlete? That's interesting, that perspective. Yeah, and I like what you say too about yogis doing more weights because that's something I see a lot is people that do yoga just doing yoga and they're already like hypermobile. And then I've heard stories of people's like, humerus is literally kind of detaching from their trunk because it's like they're so and now I've heard contrary things to this studies but that's just anecdotal evidence of people feeling like their limbs are literally falling off because they've stretched 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 and they're already hypermobile and that's terrifying that's not healthy at all if your limbs are falling off so I think a lot of people veer towards what they they're already good at right like because yeah. we want to feel some sort of empowerment or we want to feel some sort of like value in who we are and what we are so it's like oh this person's really good at lifting oh i want to lift more oh this person's really good at stretching they want to stretch more this person's really good at kicking or running they want to kick and run more and so it's like what you do to get outside of your inherent comfort zone to explore other areas of the human experience that you're not so good at really decides your health Hmm. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I think you're right. People. Yeah. I know. I see that at least a lot for yoga is people that are hypermobile and super flexible. They're like, wow, I'm really quote good at this. And then they make it their life. And then they're just super, super bendy and have no strength. And, and yeah. So, so coming back to the broader aspect of Chinese medicine, what led you to be interested in Chinese medicine? Why did you pursue that? I've kind of had a lifelong love affair with Chinese martial arts. And in the traditional Chinese martial arts, it's sort of expected that once you um, achieve the senior levels, a little bit more advanced levels, there becomes more and more exposure to the healing methods. So for me as a martial artist, the healing arts were just a natural progression. So that's what got me into Chinese medicine. And then once I, once I started getting into it, the more fascinated I became with it. And um, I started seeing also too, where there were little bits of little bits and pieces of, of, I don't want to say incomplete education, but there were other, there were other tools that uh, different modalities, different groups, different practitioners had. And as I got to meet Pavel Tsulin um, and hear about how uh, he trained people with, with kettlebells, particularly with his hard style method. I just thought, man, this is stuff that I wish we'd gotten in day one when it came to learning about anatomy and physiology. Hmm. That's interesting. And so you kind of, you went through the martial arts and then what was like the first, because you said you mentioned earlier, all these branches of Chinese medicine. Was there one that you were drawn to before the others or that made sense to you before the others? Yeah, acupuncture was probably the last thing that I got any real exposure to. The earliest stuff, I mean, most of the Chinese, especially Southern Chinese martial arts, practice a body of knowledge called di da. And so that's basically traumatology. So using manual medicine in order to fix injuries. And in, and in addition to the manual medicine, a lot of times there's the use or application of liniments, like herbal tinctures, things like that, um, applied topically. Uh, rubbed into injuries to accelerate the healing process so that that was my earliest exposure okay and when you say traumatology do you mean physical mm -hmm. trauma or mental trauma or both 
physical trauma. So in other words, the injury sustained during training, doing martial arts. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That's very cool. And so what do you think? So you've obviously done, you said you have doctorate in Chinese medicine and then. And acupuncture. So that's just one thing. Okay. And so with all your training with the martial arts and then the Chinese medicine, what do you think is the most valuable thing that you've learned? Hmm. It's kind of a heavy question. That's yeah. That's there's so many different ways I could take that. The most important thing I've learned in Chinese medicine. Or the most, most valuable when applied to your life. Like maybe something you do, you incorporate every single day. Chinese medicine and martial arts are really like different sides of the same coin. I mean, like it really is guided all by Chinese philosophy and on a philosophical level, I'll, I'll answer it this way. On a philosophical level, like the yin and yang, which the Chinese refer to as tai chi, the tai chi symbol, the yin and yang, it literally means polar opposites. So extreme fast, extreme slow, extreme hard, extreme soft, extreme light, extreme dark. Being able to experience life further and further and further at those extremes really gives you, a, or the ability to experience life at those extremes really to me is health like health is all about adaptability can you go to those extremes and still function and then come back to a point of balance or is going away from like a narrow center if going away from that narrow center throws you off to a point where you're almost pathologically out of balance or it dysfunctional and you can't return back to center comfortably then that's an indicator that maybe you want to like broaden your scope, broaden your view, broaden your skill set so that you can access those parts of life or access those experiences or access those perspectives and ways of thinking without tensing, without feeling uncomfortable. And so when you say coming, going to an extreme of the yin and the yang and then coming back to center, can you give an example of what going to an extreme would look like? Sure. Like, for example, let's say, and just in a, just to use very physical analogies, right? Like, let's say I want to be able to sit and meditate and just focus on breath work and posture. I should be able to do that in a training session and not feel like antsy, like, oh my God, this is so boring. God, why am I doing it? You know, like, and having that constant chatter in the brain. Or I should be able to go like, all right, I'm just going to spend today and, you know, maybe work some stretching, maybe something chill maybe some light, you know, shadow boxing or jumping rope, something easy that like ratchets up the the mobility level or the movement level. Maybe that means that I'm going to do do kettlebell swings, like high power explosive kettlebell swings or, you know, a Turkish getup or something like that with an 80 pound kettlebell. And I should be able to do that. So, and do that for reps and do so in a way where like, it's a maximum expression of power and control. Conversely, I should be able to go like, okay, I'm just going to work wind sprints up a hill today. So whatever you're doing, or maybe I should be able to go and and play with the kids, throw a ball around, like play on the monkey bars, uh, you know, wrestle around with my son, you know, any, anything like that. Like if your point of, if your, if your scope of access is, let's say this wide, but then like life could ask you to do things like that are out here. And it's not something crazy like, hey, go sprint up a plane that's in mid-flight. 
that that's a little bit out there but if it's like you know hey let's just just go for a jog or go for a run or play some golf or ride a horse or you know go biking why not like if if those things are too much of a challenge for your body and you consider yourself an athlete maybe your perspective athletics i mean barring of course like people that have have major injuries or people that have you know other physical challenges there's really no reason why the quote unquote able bodied athlete shouldn't be able to do those things okay so it's basically just having the ability to live your life as a human on all the different, like the masculine, the feminine, that's kind of how I interpret that, like the yin and the yang, the masculine, the doing, the sprinting, the kettleballs, and then the yin would be the meditation type of thing, the breath work, the posture work. Uh, it depends on how you train it. I mean, like breath work and posture work can be very young as well, depending on how you access it. So, I mean kettlebell training also too right if you're working with a kettlebell and you're hold and you're doing a dynamic hold or a static hold and moving very very slowly that's not necessarily very young it could be very yin like if you see a turkish getup done in such a way where it takes 3 minutes to do one rep that's a balance that's you that's very young in the sense that there's a lot of strength that's required but it's very yin in the sense that it's very slow mm interesting so nuance is right um, crucial i think we're we as a society are really quick to categorize and so categories are great in the sense that it allow it allows us to wrap our brain around things yeah the only thing is doing so oftentimes becomes dismissive we don't really get to appreciate something as its whole gotcha it's more black and white and not so much gray yeah there's a lot of gray there is a lot of gray i think the more I, the older I get and the more I experience and the more I've gotten to really go deep and to understand things, the more I really appreciate how rich the grays are. Yeah. And I don't say rich in terms of like, there's just a lot of gray and nebulousness. I say rich the grays are in, because, and I deliberately chose the word rich because there's so much value in those shades of gray. Mm, I really like that. And I know with the gray, I actually think that's a really healthy way to move through life, especially now with all the craziness, is appreciating the gray area and not being so, I just did this meditation with my teacher training I'm doing, where they present you kind of a controversial opinion and you just watch what comes up. And then they say, can you argue for this, even if you don't agree with it? And so it's like learning to appreciate both sides and live in an area or live in a world that's more gray and less black and white. Yep. Yeah. I think that's super important. I think that's an exercise that if more of us were taught that as kids or more of us got comfortable doing that as kids, we'd see a lot less societal conflict. I agree. And I think it's really important too. And in, in a profession, especially as someone who deals with people's health, is not getting too committed to one side just for the comfort of it. I see that a lot in yoga, in the yoga world. People get really committed to one side and then they miss the value of the other side. 
so and i'm sure it's like that in chinese medicine too i don't know is it it's it's like that in every field of human endeavor not just chinese medicine but also physical therapy chiropractic yeah. strength training i mean like people are wired such that once you know if they're trained to hammer then everything looks like a nail so right you know i i see these kinds of posts all the time on instagram where people are like oh you know if you're if you're clinician or if your therapist is only doing manual is is doing manual work on you and isn't making you do like strength training then they're missing the boat and you know people are so dismissive and that lack of appreciation for context is really myopic and really arrogant like people need to have a little bit more chill and a little bit more respect for different modalities and the different contexts in which those modalities are valid I agree 100%. And I see you posting stuff like this all the time on your stories because I've followed you for the last few months. And I'm, I, I like that you incorporate different views. I think that's really important in, in all fields of any kind of healing. I think it's super important, especially important in fields of healing because it's like, what's more important, actually healing someone or just being committed to this thought or identity, you know? Yeah, I think we get really into the quote unquote party line and okay, it's kind of cool to demonstrate your loyalty. It's cool or whatever to demonstrate how hardcore you can be. But if you're super hardcore to the point where you're rigid and you're inflexible and you're, you're demonstrating a lack of ability to comprehend a different point of view and your only reaction is to be dismissive of it it's then you know that's no longer an asset you're just showing how much of a chauvinist you are yeah. <laughs> I love how you just say it as it is it's true yeah it's true and yeah I think at that point it's past the point of caring about others prioritizing people's health and just more into the land of ego and satisfying ego and that's that's a tricky tricky land to explore because I think we all have the capacity to wander into ego land you know certainly well that's like kind of a good segue into the next question which is what are common misconceptions that people that aren't familiar with chinese medicine have about chinese medicine hmm um wow that's another loaded question yeah take your time i think a lot of people think about chinese medicine as exotic as weird as whatever and depending on what your background is that might be true i mean like to some people the thought of inserting a needle into their body freaks them the hell out but similarly you know if you get it if you've ever had an injection or ever had blood work done that's an even or botox sure i mean those are way bigger needles the average acupuncture needle is like you probably have hairs on your body that are thicker than those, some of those needles so for people to freak out about that it is understandable, but misinformed. As far as the herbs, that's not really my area of like my strongest suit, but a lot of it, a lot of it, think about it more like this, like instead of herbal medicine in terms of like, here, you're going to take these weird, like witches brew kind of stuff. Think of it more as like diet as medicine. So in other words, what you put into your mouth, the foods that you put into your mouth, the things that you use to nourish you should be able to influence your body chemistry in the best possible way. So in other words, does it bring out the best in you? Or is it just something you happen to like that doesn't bring out the best in you? 
So let me put herbal medicine in that light and from that, or explain it from that perspective. As far as the manual medicine, I mean, like if you, if your listeners have been exposed to massage and or chiropractic or osteopathy, it, I mean, Chinese manual medicine is really the Chinese take on that. And actually, to be honest, from a historical perspective, during the time when, um, you know, for any of your listeners or any of your viewers or any of your audience that have uh, seen Warrior on HBO Max, it's during that time period when a lot of the Chinese came over to the, the, the U.S. to work the railroads and work the mines during the gold rush era, that a lot of the Chinese manual medicine was actually exerting an influence on the development of Western medical practices like osteopathy and Cairo. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And I know, I don't know too much about the history of that time. I know I've we had like a railroad museum in Sacramento that I would go to all the time. So we did learn a bit about what it was like when the Chinese came over and there was that influx of um, immigrants from Asia, but it seemed to me like there was not a ton of acceptance during that time of Chinese medicine. So how, how did that penetrate Western medicine? I'm not completely clear on that myself. Um, from what I understand, based on stories that have been told down, you know, oral histories. The workers that came over at that time, in any group, there's always going to be someone that has a little bit of an understanding of the human body. And so there were people that like during, I mean, building a railroad or doing just manual labor for days and days, hours and hours and days and days on end for years and years, there are going to be injuries that happen. Yeah. And so when there are injuries that happen, there have to be some sort of solutions. Otherwise, those people who get injured are, are like dead, essentially, yeah. or basically dead. So the healers in the group would then treat the injured. And then, you know, when the people who were injured came back the next day, then the foreman would be like, hey, how come, you know, how come, how come this guy's back at work today? Like, I thought you hurt your this or I thought you hurt your that. And so out of curiosity, some of these foremen would then go to the Chinese labor camps and see what was going on. And so that's how word spread. And that's how it got gained legitimacy, probably too. Legitimacy is a tricky word to use because like, I feel like even today, I mean, we're, we're on the cusp of 2022 today as, as this is being recorded. Yeah. I think the word legitimacy is tough because there are plenty of people in the mainstream that look at acupuncture who and and think like oh you know that stuff shouldn't well, you know well how come that's insurance doesn't need to cover that kind of the voodoo type stuff and you hear comments like this quite a lot less and less as the years go on but certainly there are some people who are are quite conditioned to think those things and so i think legitimacy is something that has to be proven clinically like if you are good at what you do tackle a problem and understand how to tackle it like i think western medicine is awesome when it comes to certain things like if god forbid someone had a, a really traumatic car accident and you know crush wounds things like that the person that they should go see is not an acupuncturist <laughs> conversely if you're someone that's like suffering from chronic lower back pain or chronic knee pain or chronic this or that. And you're, especially if your imaging comes back and shows nothing like, or, or your, your, the radiologist report is like, yeah, everything is relatively normal. There's like mild degeneration, this, that, and the other, but like nothing to really match the symptomatology. Mm -hmm. 
then the symptomatology isn't architectural. It's something else. Yes. And so I, for them, I think, you know, other modalities, whether it be strength training, whether it be yoga therapy, whether it be acupuncture, are super helpful and super effective. I agree completely. I think Western medicine is great for traumatic injury. And I'm so grateful we have it. And I think Eastern medicine is where it's at for chronic stuff, any kind of chronic thing. And I, I know I shared this with you last time I saw you, but I'm just going to share it again for the sake of the podcast. But I, about four years ago, I got in a car accident and I had some whiplash and my C1 was sitting on my spine like this, like crooked. And I had so much pain. I would like almost pass out from pain. There was days I couldn't get out of bed, splitting headaches. I saw an Atlas chiropractor, which did not go great. It actually just caused me more pain and was super expensive. Hmm. And then I kind of stopped that. I stopped seeing that chiropractor, but it still had constant neck pain. Like once every few weeks, I'd have to take a bunch of Advil and just a lot of chronic pain. And it just wouldn't go away, even with yoga. And I saw an acupuncturist in October, I believe. And she put the first needle in my neck. That was my first experience with acupuncture. And she put the first needle like right around my C1 and I just started bawling and spinning. Like I felt like I was on drugs Mm -hmm. instantly. It was insane. Spinning on the table, crying. I cried for three hours. And after that, my neck pain was gone after years of doing everything. And I'm not saying that cured me because I had done years and years of, you know, things, yoga, stretching, different massage, but that like converted me (laughs) to being a believer in acupuncture. Very cool. Yeah. And do you ever see, like, is that a common experience for people? For the demographic that I've worked with, I wouldn't say that's a super common experience. I mean, like I've certainly heard of it and I've certainly seen a little bit of it. Some of my colleagues um, and my classmates and peers see more of that than I do. But yeah, for me, not so much. Like most of the time I deal with guys that are like, or athletes or whomever that they're like, their pain is pretty cut and dry. It's, It's pretty mechanical. So it's like, okay, we'll do this. We'll do this. We'll do this. And then, okay, test that. How does that feel? Oh, that's better. Great. So it's, it's almost transactional a lot of times in how I, in how I end up treating. So not super, not super emotional. Gotcha. Yeah. If I'm working with someone now, conversely, during the 2018 winter games, I was accompanying the U S speed skating team to Korea. Uh, And some of the work I did there was sports psych. So, you know, there are times when I, need to be able to unpack or help someone unpack their emotions so it's not to say that like what i do on a professional level is totally void of emotion certainly there's very much um, an emotional component but it's not something that i see oftentimes like what you're describing like i'll press on a point and someone will cry or someone will have a you know a come to jesus moment (laughs) it's it's not quite like that for me or at least it hasn't been like that for my in my experience interesting okay and I want to ask this question before we run out of time, because I really love this. How do you weave knowledge or your knowledge of traditional Chinese medicine into how you train your body? Ooh, great one. 
honestly, I see it all as a continuum. Like the best martial artists in my experience, in my opinion, and in like the people that I've met and the people that I've you know researched over time have been in a lot of ways, the best athletes and also the best philosophers. So to be a great athlete, you have to have great health. You know, truly in my, in my, ex, in my experience and in, in how I define it and how I understand it and how I comprehend it, if you really want to optimize how your body expresses itself, you really want to optimize the health that allows you to do that. So if your martial arts doesn't have a whole lot of extra health practices designed to improve your health or optimize your health. So like improve your health, let's say if you're not perfectly healthy, if you're injured, if you need rehab, if you need recovery, if you like are trying to deal with something that is impairing your movement or impairing your fitness, there need to be practices inherent in your martial art that allow you to recover those. Similarly, there need to be practices that allow you to optimize. So in other words, if you come in as a total beginner, someone that has no injuries, but just doesn't have the requisite strength, coordination, flexibility, whatever, right? There need to be training practices that allow you to access those. And so like, I don't see rehab work or strength and conditioning work and martial arts as separate things. Mm. I see the combat aspect of martial arts as something maybe a little bit separate. Like in other words, you know, does a speed skater need to need to glove up and start boxing or kickboxing? No, but they may need hand-eye drills and situational awareness drills that are extracted from martial arts to be able to help them manage the, the herd or, or navigate through the pack when they're trying to overtake. So there are drills that may come from martial arts that help individuals like that or athletes like that. And that's part of what K3 was created for, like my, my, my training method, K3 combat movement systems. K3 originally was designed to answer the question, like someone asked me, I think in 08, Doc, what do you do for your workout? And I thought, hmm, okay, my workouts at the time really consisted of three Ks, kettlebells, kick punch martial arts, and weapon-based martial arts, Kali and Kirby Kabong, so from Southeast Asia. And so I thought, huh, okay, so K3. I thought, wow, that, that, that moniker has yet to be taken, so I'm going to take it. K3 combat movement systems. Over time, I realized, like, okay, fewer people really want to learn, like, actual martial arts, like combat martial arts, as compared to people who can benefit from the training methods from athletics, from rehab, from academics, from life as a total thing, right? Socialization things like that, improving academic performance. So instead of just teaching fighting for the sake of fighting, how can we take things that have served warrior culture since time immemorial and use them to serve humanity in a greater scheme? That's very interesting. I, that answer surprised me how, because when you say martial arts, I immediately think of combat. And yep. so that's really interesting that you say you essentially take those elements that you can incorporate in your day-to-day -day and you just utilize those and extract those from the practice. Obviously you practice combat as well, but for oh, those of us who maybe don't have as much interest or need for the combat aspect, that's really interesting mm -hmm. that you can still utilize everything else, basically. Totally. Totally. I mean, like the way I designed K3 was that if 
you want to benefit from the martial arts, you can get all the benefits and you don't necessarily have to fight per se. So it's like, if fighting is anathema to you, then don't. But that doesn't mean that you can't have access to all this other stuff that's great, that's beautiful, that's fun, that's enriching, that's, that's restorative in these arts. So that's, that's K3. Cool. That's awesome. And so now let's move on to the final lightning round question. So I haven't really showed you these. That's kind of the point of this one. Take your time answering. I can cut out any pauses. And, and yeah, just say the first thing that comes to your mind. So number one is what is one message that you would tell your 13-year-old self? Slow down. Slow down. It will all be okay. You're going to hear a lot of people around you urge you to do more, urge you to do these things, urge you to like, there's a sense of urgency. There's a pushing. There's like people trying to motivate you to do more. And it's good to be able to accelerate, but it's equally as important. Just like when you're driving, you need to be able to know how to tap the brake. So understand that sometimes slowing down and taking your time rather than training yourself to handle greater and greater levels of anxiety, don't just chill. Like there's a time to chill and people will also judge you based on their level of comprehension at the time. So they may feel a sense of urgency that they're projecting onto you. You don't have to take it to heart. That's so good. Number two. What is the single biggest thing we can do as individuals to heal the world collectively? On a similar note, give space, give space. So just as the question was like, what would I tell my 13 year old self? Uh, I would sit down with him and like, you know, reassure him, give him a hug, like, and just give him space, like to say like, dude, there's so many things that you're going to want to try, want to explore, whatever. And it's cool. Like do that. Like, you know, people will say things, people may say things, people may not say things, people may support you, people may judge you. And like, none of that really matters. You do you. Some of the things that have made me the most su successful, happy, healthy, got me crazy paid, have been some of the very same things that I heard as a kid that would be like dead end would be whatever, like, you know, that were presented in a negative light. So I, I think, you know, people will give advice, maybe with the best of intentions, but not with the best of context and understanding. So yeah, just give space, but also to create space in and of yourself. So like, allow yourself some space to learn more, to grow more, to understand more. Mm. Wow. That was amazing. You're blowing my mind, Mark, with these lightning <laughs> round answers. Okay. Last one is what is your favorite or most powerful affirmation mantra, whatever it is that you use or have been using? <laughs> God. Uh I, I think the only mantra that comes to mind is like, is like kind of what I use for my motto in terms of work, you know, make every rep rehabilitative. So if you extrapolate that out, I mean, that, that, that motto is my, is my business for Dr. Mark Cheng Inc. Like that's my guiding principle. But 
if you extrapolate that out to the rest of life, like make everything that you do, not just, you know, rehabilitative in the sense that like something's wrong with you, but like make it, make it excite you, make like do things in your life that add richness to your day, that create good. Like if you swap out the word God for good, or rather the converse, swap out the word good for God. Like a lot of people talk about like, oh, I want to do this as an expression of love for God. Well, you know, all these kinds of things that are, you know, done in the name of religion, regardless of whatever religion that may be. If you swap out the word God or any of the words that people substitute for God and say, look, I want to do this as an expression of goodness. Like, how can I, how can I be a better person so that I can help other people? Then that's kind of the guiding principle for me. I feel like there's a theme in all of the answers you just gave of like, follow your bliss, follow your, that inner calling, regardless of what the world says. And that's really, I feel like that's what you've done. And you've created this like incredible empire of Dr. Mark Chang Inc. That's just super badass and successful in every definition of the word. I think there's a little bit of definition tightening that needs to occur. Like following your bliss is awesome up to a point. I think a lot of people don't really know what their bliss is. Like they're, they're following their momentary highs mm. or they're following something that's like a momentary pleasure or they're following something that is not necessarily super informed. So like their bliss for that moment may be like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go buy a plane ticket to like Tahiti and max out my credit cards and do that may be your bliss, but everything's got consequences. So being able to do stuff that creates good mm. is a little bit different than following your bliss. So I think for your listeners and for your audience, like if you're trying to judge, what is it that I want to do? Like, does it make you happy for one? Is it sustainable? Really important too, because you might be able to do things that make you happy, but if those things that make you happy also burn you out, that's important to be able to recognize as well. You know, like I love, I love what I get to do for quote unquote work because it's not really work. I mean, like I, what I get paid to do is my passion, but if I don't pace myself up to a point, like, and like, I've been, to be honest, I never imagined that I'd be in the situation that I'm in right now. So especially at this point in the pandemic, I never imagined I'd be, I'd be this in demand. So like, I've been redlining pretty much all of 2021. Like I've been working my ass off and there have been, certainly there've been moments when I've, I've dialed back, but also too, it's, you can overdo it. So you can overdo too much of a good thing. Yeah. So that's the word of warning there. That's great. I mean, I've experienced that even with teaching yoga, like you said, with what you're doing, I love this. This is my passion, but there's days when I, yeah you're like pouring from an empty cup and then that does not work those days and I like too how you get really into the semantics of the definitions of these sayings that we use all the time like follow your bliss that's something that people say all the time and I think it's loosely used and so I like how you go in and dissect it and really get into the meaning and your your meaning of it too so thank you. Yeah, for precision, precision in language to me is a big thing because like the more precise we are in our speech, the clearer we get to be in our thought and then the more productive we get to be in our lives. Mm. 
And then final question, most important one, where can people find you and your offerings? I'm pretty active on social media. I'm on the big three, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Dr. Mark Cheng. So A-T, the at sign, and then D-R-M-A-R-K-C-H-E-N-G. So yeah, that's usually where the easiest places are to find me. So on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook, at Dr. Mark Cheng. Awesome. And do you have any space in your calendar right now for new clients or are you completely booked up? Actually, I've got a waiting list. So okay, well. I, I never, I, I say this knock on wood with such gratitude. Like I never, I, you know, when the pandemic first broke out, I thought without a doubt, by this point in time, I'm going to be like broke and trying to figure out where I'm going to live. I've never been a, in a position before in my life where I'm working this many hours and I never, it makes me stutter when I think about it because like I, it's overwhelming. I never imagined that I'd be in the position that I'm at now. So very, very grateful. And so not to put anyone off, like if you reach out, I will do my best to help you or steer you towards someone who can help you. But yeah, I'm a little bit slammed, to put it mildly. Well, congratulations on that. And it's no surprise because it sounds like you know what you're doing and yeah, makes sense. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today, Mark. It's been an honor and a pleasure, Kelly. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Your Own Medicine podcast. I hope you enjoyed what you heard, and if you did, feel free to rate and review the podcast, or feel free to share it on whatever social media platform you are on. I'm normally on Instagram and Facebook, and feel free to also send me a DM just letting me know what you thought of the episode, if you liked it, didn't like it, with any feedback you have to offer. And I will see you next week with a new episode of Your Own Medicine. Every Tuesday, a new one will be out. So until then, keep on healing and be your own medicine.